It is my great joy and privilege to open up the Word of God to you again this morning. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 21 as we continue this very fascinating journey through the early days of the church as Luke records it. This morning we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses of Acts 21. Let me read this text to you. And when it came about that we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home again. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. In Matthew chapter 10. You need not turn there. The Lord gave some astonishing directions to his 12 apostles and ultimately to all of us. There he said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he went on to say, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And certainly this would become the fate of the Apostle Paul. You know, it is shocking to think that the great shepherd would send his defenseless sheep into the midst of ravenous wolves. And yet, as always, the marvels of salvation always exceed our ability to comprehend. But, beloved, you must understand that this is our calling. Behold, he said, I send you forth. He does not say, I ask you to just kind of wait around until they come, but rather, I send you forth. I fear that we're all much better at waiting than going. Let your conscience be your judge on that matter. But the Apostle Paul was driven 
by the Lord's call on his life. Nothing else really mattered. And as we study his life and ministry, we see that he was absolutely fearless in going in amongst the wolves, knowing that it was the Lord of hosts that had sent him forth. And such a conviction, dear friends, will turn a defenseless sheep into the most formidable foe any wolf could possibly imagine, making the prey infinitely more powerful than the predator. And beloved, may I remind you before we look into this text that the gospel enterprise is extremely dangerous when it is preached with boldness and clarity because the world hates it and it will render every man a coward unless he grasps this great truth. Behold, I send you forth. We go forth armed with his authority, with his power. Not our own, remembering that the Lamb has already overcome. Indeed, we fight a battle that has already been won. But as we go forth, we do not present ourselves with an air of cocky arrogance. We don't bully our way into people's lives. That's why Jesus reminded the apostles and therefore all of us in Matthew 10 that we are to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, like the serpent, we are to be prudent. And like the dove, we are to be innocent. We are to be discreet and cautious like a serpent who seeks to avoid the human race, knowing full well that if he is spotted, someone will probably go get a hoe and kill him. Thus, the servant of God, like the serpent, must be wise in dealing with a hostile world. He will never be noisy. He will never be accusatory. He will never be inflammatory. Nor should we be reckless and rash or foolish looking for a fight. But we are to be prudent and also harmless as a dove, a creature that symbolizes humility and grace. Like it, we should be kind and compassionate and innocent, never aggressive, abrasive, rude or whatever. And as we examine the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, we see all of these virtues before us. But as we come to this text this morning, we are struck especially once again with Paul's fearless devotion to duty. We are struck with his indomitable spirit of courage. We are faced with his resolute determination to serve the Lord, come what may. This is what I wish to call valiant faith. And for this reason, I have entitled my discourse, Valiant Faith. Valiant being something that is bold, something that is noble, something that is heroic and daring. A faith that gives glory to the giver of faith. And I believe we all have much to learn here. Certainly, Paul's life is very, very convicting to me. So with many tears, Paul and his companions tear themselves away from the Ephesian elders at Miletus and boarded their ship to Jerusalem, knowing full well the bonds and afflictions that awaited him there. And in verse 1 of 21, we read that when it came about that we had parted from them, parted could literally been, be translated, torn ourselves away from them. And it set sail. We ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Each port that we read here required one day's journey. In the Aegean Sea, we are told that the summer during the summertime, there exists a prevailing north wind in the early morning, and it continues through late afternoon. But then it will die down around sunset, and it will result in just a dead calm sea. And then gradually that will yield to a mild south wind that will blow up at night. So therefore, going in the direction that they were going, they traveled it during the daytime. And in verse 2, it says that having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And I just want to build the context here so you understand what's happening. You will recall that Paul wanted to make it to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. 
So now we see that he is boarding a larger vessel. We know that because you would have to have a very large vessel to traverse the Mediterranean Sea with the prevailing west winds rather than hugging the coastline as they were going from port to port. In verse three, when we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. And if you know your geography, that's exactly what would happen. We kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Tyre, as you may recall, is on the coast of Lebanon. We can see it on our maps today. It was ancient Phoenicia in the region of Syria. Now, beloved, let me help you place yourself in the mind and the body of the Apostle Paul. You were once a persecutor of the church, and now you exhaust yourself to build it. You were once a hater of Christ and all who belong to him. And now you love them with an undying love. You've been persecuted now for many years. And yet you, as Acts 19 and verse 21 says, have purposed in your spirit to go to Jerusalem. He says, I've been bound in spirit. In other words, I've been compelled by the Holy Spirit. And I am determined, according to Acts 20, 24, to fulfill the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. So now the Apostle Paul is passionate about distributing those desperately needed funds for the church in Jerusalem, funds that he has collected in Asia Minor from the Gentile churches, as well as from the churches in Greece, wanting to give them to the Jewish converts there in Jerusalem despite the promised bonds and afflictions. And so now you're making your way towards this very dangerous place. And here we begin to see three things, at least, that emerge from the text with respect to a valiant faith. A valiant faith, dear friends, is marked by three things. Number one, it seeks opportunities for fellowship. You see, after he arrives in Tyre and he awaits the ship to unload, notice what Luke describes in verse four. It says, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. Now, again, I find this fascinating as I meditate upon the text, although he knows that trials and traumas lay ahead. Paul and his traveling companions look up their fellow believers in Tyre. Looking up literally could be translated, they tried to find them out by searching for them. So they went on a hunt for other believers. Now, obviously, they did not know them. You might recall that this church was founded by believers who had earlier escaped the persecution that Paul had instigated in the martyrdom of Stephen. And I find it interesting here. There's no room for R&R or vacation in the life of Paul. There's never any dereliction of duty. He is always seeking to find opportunities for fellowship and service. And he wastes no time in seeking the fellowship of those of like precious faith. Undoubtedly, these believers had heard of Paul's conversion and they would have welcomed him into their homes. And like all true believers, any time a believer is around one who can open up the word to them, I'm sure that they spent many hours sitting at his feet, asking him questions, interacting on the glorious truths of the gospel, learning more about the plan and the purposes of God. And beloved, I might add that this will always be a mark of valiant faith of a noble, praiseworthy faith. A person with this kind of faith will take every opportunity for fellowship. This kind of person will seek every opportunity to share their faith, to even give their testimony and to hear the testimonies of others, to serve and to teach and to hear, to love, to sing, to pray, to worship. In fact, you show me a professing Christian who has no desire for these kinds of things. And I will show you a man with a dead faith that cannot save. 
You see, this is fellowship of the purest form. This is koinonia that is translated fellowship. It could also be translated association or participation. Fellowship is the mutual sharing of life and of ministry. This is what constantly drove the Apostle Paul. God has called us, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 9, into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And dear child of God, you must understand that every aspect of our life is to be an expression of this mystical yet very real union that we have with Christ. One that will manifest itself in our relationships with other Christians. Even as every cell of our physical body must work with every other cell in order for it to live, so too every member of the body of Christ can only live when it is serving its God-ordained purpose within the context of this mystical organism, the body of Christ. We read about that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12. We all need each other. As I was thinking about this, I found my mind going back to Acts chapter 2. Remember in verse 42, we read of the early believers there in the church. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And to the breaking of bread and to prayer. He went on to say that all those who had believed were together and all things and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Frankly, this is what we are endeavoring to do today with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in Georgia. The text went on to say there in Acts 2 that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I grieve. I literally grieve for Christians who choose to live in isolation from the rest of the body. And frankly, because of that, I seriously question if their faith is genuine. You know, those folks that live on the periphery of the church. Those who have no desire to be part of the life of the church, of the body life. Those who live on the fringes. Those who are unwilling to get involved. Those who will manufacture all manner of excuses to justify their independence. They make no effort to initiate fellowship. They make no effort to initiate friendships. In fact, many view the church, the body of Christ, as kind of an optional extracurricular activity rather than an indivisible expression of their union with Christ. And then there are others who will be a part of the church, but quite frankly, they never get out of their comfort zone. They will never seek out new people and try to get to know them, to try to serve them. They will sit in their very same little clique every time we have a meal. Rather than trying to see someone they don't know and go and initiate fellowship and friendship with them. Not so, dear friends, a valiant faith. A valiant faith will seek to share. It will seek to serve. A valiant faith is a giving faith. It is a contagious faith. It longs to fellowship with other believers. It longs to serve them and to help them grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. John tells us in 1 John 1, 7 that the source of our fellowship and the longing for this fellowship is Christ. He says there in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Said differently, if you have no desire for fellowship with other saints, you're not walking in the light. Psalm 34, 3 says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You see, this is not an option in the Bible. This is something to be expected 
Beloved, we are a family. Who has to be told, you know, you really need to spend time with your family unless for some reason you don't love your family. Frankly, this is part of the one another's that we read in Scripture. They're sprinkled all through the New Testament. For example, we are to pray with one another and to pray for one another. We are to comfort one another, exhort one another, love, edify, admonish one another. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are to show mutual love and concern for one another. We are to submit to one another in the fear of God. We are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. We are to bear with one another in love. Beloved, you cannot do these things if you're an island unto yourself. Psalm 16, verse 3, we read, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And our lives should reflect the heart of the psalmist and certainly what we see here in the valiant faith of the Apostle Paul. Paul not only wanted to meet these saints so he could fellowship with them and edify them, but he also knew the power of koinonia, the power of fellowship. He knew what awaited him. Therefore, he needed the strength and the prayers and the support of other saints. He needed their encouragement as he went forward into battle. You know, no soldier chooses to ignore his family before he goes into battle. No soldier wants to ignore his family on the eve of combat. And I believe the reason so many Christians have so little regard for fellowship, especially for the idea of searching out other saints and enjoying their presence and doing the one anotherings is simply because they're not engaged in the battle. Believe me, when you are, you will want to spend time with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I think of Jesus. He surrounded himself with those of valiant faith. He needed their fellowship. And that fellowship was sweet and it was con- constant. What did Jesus do as he approached Jerusalem? getting ready to face the agonies of the Passion Week and the horrors of the cross. What did he do? Well, after raising Lazarus from the dead and fellowshipping with him and Mary and Martha and the others that were with him, in John eleven fifty four, we read that he went into the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And again, before his betrayal, what did he do? He was with his disciples in the upper room. And again, in the garden, when he was arrested, he was with his disciples. In fact, in John 17, Jesus prayed for all whom the father had given him. And he said in verse 21 that they may all be one, even as thou, father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us. Capital U referring to the triune Godhead that the world may believe that thou didst send me. So, dear friends, to be sure, we will fellowship with each other and with the triune God through all of eternity. Oh, child of God, fellowship is to the Christian what sunlight is to a plant. You must understand that though a plant can survive for a time without light, especially during the, the night, much longer will certainly prevent it from bearing fruit. And eventually, if it's away from the light long enough, it will become diseased and wither and die. And some of you, quite frankly, are sickly branches on the tree because you are deprived of the light of fellowship. Because you have been deprived too long of that which you should be a part of. Well, there is yet another mark of valiant faith. Not only does it seek opportunities for fellowship, but secondly, it is sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Verse 4 again, and after looking up the disciples, Luke says that we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
Now, here, I believe, is an example of the misuse of the gift of prophecy. Indeed, Paul warned the Corinthians that not all who claimed the gift of prophecy would be genuine. We read that in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Evidently, someone or perhaps several individuals here were insistent that the Holy Spirit did not want Paul to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, whether theirs was an overactive imagination and they were zealous for their friend, they didn't want to see him lose, their, lose his life and so forth, or whether they were motivated by just a simple misunderstanding of what the Spirit said, we, we simply don't know. But I believe that perhaps the Spirit had spoken to one of them, maybe several of them. But what he had given them was more of a warning of what was to come rather than some kind of an interdiction forbidding him to go altogether. But whatever it was, we know that this advice contradicted what the Holy Spirit had communicated to the Apostle Paul earlier, as well as what the Lord Jesus had told him. We read in Acts 20, beginning in verse 22, and now behold, bound by the spirit, in other words, compelled by the spirit's direct leading. I am on my way to Jerusalem, Paul said. Later, he said, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And friends, I believe you will search in vain to find one example of the Apostle Paul deliberately disregarding and disobeying the Spirit's leading in his life. And no amount of interpretive gymnastics can convince me that here the Apostle Paul should have listened to their counsel I believe that a valiant faith, as we look at the scripture, will always be one that is sensitive to the spirit's leading. Now, this is not referring to some kind of subjective hunch, some quiver in your liver type of thing. You're thinking about something and all of a sudden the telephone rings and you think, ah, that settles it. That's what I must do. Not that type of silliness, not some mystical intuition and certainly not by receiving some information from some self-appointed prophet or any other person that claims to receive direct revelation from God. But the Spirit's leading will include a very clear, well-reasoned direction based upon not only the providence of God that will open and shut doors, but also objective truth that is revealed to us by the Spirit of God through His Word, as well as through the servants who proclaim it. Sometimes this can include input from other saints, from from parents, from teachers, from pastors, spouses, friends and so forth. But it will always be rooted in the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. I've had a number of occasions in my life where somebody has come to me and said, God has given me some special word to give to you. Or some prophecy, some word of knowledge or whatever. And I always stop them very kindly and say, you know, I'm, I'm curious. Why do you think he would communicate this to you and not to me? And secondly, how do you know this is from God and not from some demon? What is your criteria? And then kindly, I will say, please, I, I don't even want to hear it. Because certainly in the number of cases that I have experienced without fail, these same people are also people that inevitably believe some really bad theology and go to some churches that teach that. And I cannot imagine God speaking something to them in such a direct way. Well, though there is no reason to believe that this is to be the case here at Tyre, nevertheless, Paul is sensitive to the Spirit's leading in his life, and he disregards their counsel. Verse 5, and when it came about that our days there were ended, Luke says, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then, Luke continues, we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. <clears throat> 
You know, I'm struck here once again with the depth of love and fellowship that we see exhibited in the early church. Isn't it interesting? I mean, we've got whole families here escorting Paul and his companions out of the city. They go out onto the beach. Undoubtedly, there would be a smaller vessel up on the beach that they would board that would take them out to the larger vessel. So they're out there and they have a farewell prayer meeting right there on the beach. Little church service right there. It reminds me of our baptisms when we're out on the beach of the creeks here in this area. What a touching scene. And also I was thinking, you know, that would be a scene that those children would never forget. Saying farewell to the Apostle Paul and his companions. How important it is for us to include our children in these things. In verse 7, we read that when they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. Now, this was another coastal port. It would have been about 25 miles south of Tyre, just a few miles north of the city of Haifa in Israel today. And we read that after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. I find it interesting. There's no search here. They don't search them out. Evidently, the word had already reached that they're coming your way. And these dear brothers and sisters awaited them. So we would know, by the way, that this would have been another church established by saints who had earlier fled from the very man that they now embrace there at Ptolemus. What sweet fellowship must have occurred with them for that day. Then verse eight on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. The text reminds us of what occurred in Acts 6. Remember, there were seven men that were appointed to help with the administrative duties. These were basically the first church staff in recorded history. And I find it interesting as I think about this text. Isn't it wonderful to see how God developed Philip as well as he did Stephen, who was one of the others? Who, how God helped them Discover and develop their spiritual gifts. And notice how it was, how all of that happened. It was in the context of serving in the church. Not out there all alone, on your own. I wonder what God will do with many of you. What gifts he will help you discover and develop as you serve at the church. I wonder how many pastors and teachers and evangelists and missionaries and church planters will come forth from this place. I wonder how many of you God will develop into faithful servants, as he already has so many of you, to serve here in this church and meet the needs of the body. How many God will raise up to be great and godly businessmen and, and, and mothers who will have such a profound influence on their children. But again, may I remind you that none of this will ever happen apart from a willingness to serve in the church, even a willingness to serve in obscurity. Like the early seven. How sad to think of wasted lives, wasted opportunities. Those people who are too busy to serve the Lord, too busy to grow in Christ, too busy to fellowship. Beloved, if that is you, you are forfeiting blessing in your life as well as reward in heaven. Well, Philip was one of the seven, and he also, we know, had a prominent role in the evangelization of Samaria. Remember, he was the one that uh, evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, Acts 8, as well as the regions between Gaza and Caesarea. And so we see here that he settles on the coast Coastal city at the coastal city of Caesarea. He's married. He has four daughters, all virgins with the gift of prophecy. Verse nine. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Perhaps God had uniquely set these young women aside, obviously had gifted them. Let me digress for a moment. We know very little about the extent of the prophetic gift with these young women. We um, from the text anyway, we have some hint from the historian Eusebius that indicates that one of the early church fathers, Papias, received information from them. 
Now, whether that information was predictive, in other words, prophetic in the sense of predicting the future or just interpretive of apostolic teaching, we we don't know. But there's no indication here in this text that they did either in the scenario in Acts 21. And certainly we know as we study scripture that given the clear prohibition against women teaching or preaching in the church, it is likely that their role was to communicate divine revelation to the saints of that specific church for the purpose of individual edification. And obviously they would have done this under the strict guidelines that the Apostle Paul set forth regarding the conduct of women in the Christian church, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. But we do know that the gift of prophecy served a special function in the days of the early church. It provided edification for the body of Christ. And upon some occasions, it was even used to predict the future. But you must understand, as we study Scripture, we see that it was primarily forthtelling rather than foretelling. Forthtelling doctrinal and practical truth rather than predicting the future. And again, we know that once the canon of New Testament revelation was completed, the gifts of apostleship and prophecy were replaced by evangelists, pastors and teachers, as we read in Ephesians 11. And for this reason, I might add that there is a glaring absence of any mention of prophets in the New Testament epistles where the specifics of church structure are delineated. And there we see that the leadership and the teaching is to be done by the elders. And so I just would remind you that I believe Scripture teaches that the gift of prophecy no longer exists. In fact, in Revelation 22 and verse 18, we see God pronouncing a severe penalty on anyone who claims to add more revelation subsequent to the book of Revelation, which encompasses the entire period of the time of the Apostle John, about 96 A.D., until the eternal state. But we do see an example of a New Testament prophet in the next verse, verse 10. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, we read, And when he... When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Well, obviously, this was a dramatic demonstration of what lay ahead for the Apostle Paul. It was one that struck the very core of the hearts of those who loved him. And we read that they just begged him not to go. But friends, here we see yet a third mark of valiant faith, and that is it fears no enemy. A valiant faith fears no enemy. Verse 13, we read, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I believe what broke Paul's heart was not so much their outpouring of love for him. Although that certainly would strike a core, a chord in his heart that would resonate within him and cause him great sorrow. But I believe what broke his heart was their unwillingness to trust in God's goodness. It's almost as if he is saying to them, what are you doing? Don't you know that God is at work here? We read earlier this morning in our scripture reading, Philippians 1, 
where Paul noted his confident joy in the goodness of God, even in light of his potential death. And in verse 19, he said, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. By the way, his his deliverance was one that that might be a, a literal deliverance in this life or an eternal deliverance if he were to die and God deliver him permanently from his bonds. But he went on to say, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, please hear me. Whenever we doubt the goodness of God, our heart will Cause us to drift out into the open seas of despair and loneliness. It's so easy to forget that God is at work. That God has ordained our afflictions. That God is good. Regardless of what happens to us. Even though the goodness that we long for to feel completely may not be fully expressed. Until we pass through the veil of this life. As I thought about this, my mind reflected back to Matthew 14. Remember when the disciples were in the boat and the waves began to batter the boat and they were terrified. They were scared to death and Jesus came out to them walking on the water. They thought it was a ghost. And Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And then you remember how Peter walked on the water and so forth. What a marvelous picture of God's sovereign protection and intimate care. It was in light of that text that I penned this little poem that I'll read to you. That might help summarize This concept of God being good and being a part of even our afflictions. Life is filled with gale force winds that cause the waves to roar. And like the men of Galilee, we strain against the oar. With billows high, we cry aloud, oh Lord, where have you gone? Then he whispers through the squall, I've been here all along. Oh, we of little faith. Why doubt? Why give our hearts to fear? For when the tempest trials blow, tis then we must draw near. For in the wind of every storm, a sovereign eye doth see the waning faith and broken hearts of those like you and me. And with his outstretched hand of love, he reaches down to save all who trust in him alone. For us, his life he gave. So when the tumults o'er us roll, let's thank him for the gale. For in his love, he caused the storm. Twas he who set the sail. Beloved, we must never doubt the goodness of God. We must never doubt his sovereign care, his sovereign orchestration over all the things that he brings into our life. Because what he is up to is for our good And his glory. Perhaps also Paul's heart was broke. Because. He wanted more to join him in the battle. He said, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I can almost hear him saying, are are you not willing also to take up a cross for the sake of the master? Will you not join me? Do you not understand that suffering is part of our calling? That suffering is a privilege, is not a problem. That suffering for the sake of Christ will stimulate other believers to prayer. And that suffering will energize valiant faith in others. As the Spirit of God calls others to arms. Is that not what's occurring in our hearts today for those who are struggling in Russia? 
And here's where we must all examine ourselves. Beloved, may I put it this way? How many of you are willing to go to Jerusalem? Why is it that there are far more reserves in the king's army than there are those on the front lines? You ever thought about that? What's wrong here? Why is it that so few people see the battle that is being waged all around us? If this is you, may I ask you, can you not see the wounded and the fatigued on the front lines? Are are you blind to that? Can't you see those that are in desperate need of relief? Why is it that so many Christians remain in their comfortable homes, driving their comfortable cars, grooming their comfortable lawns, watching their comfortable movies, playing their comfortable games, pruning their comfortable gardens, while other brothers and sisters in Christ are on the front lines crying out for reinforcements. Why is that? Dear friends, the walls are being breached by the enemy in some of your homes and you don't even see it. The walls are even being breached in this church and you don't see it. Some of you have virtually abandoned your children for some other distraction that you deem worthy. You're not willing to go to Jerusalem, so to speak. And my, the types of things that we're asking here, as I speak of issues related to our church, are nothing to compare with what Paul was about to experience. The children and youth of our church I believe, are silently crying out for us to rescue them from the kingdom of darkness. Yet some of you say, well, no, hey, wait a minute. I'm on the reserve force. Um, I have other matters that I must tend to. I, I will leave those things for the warriors on the front line. My time and my talent and my treasure is, 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 is on reserve. Now, I'll be there when I'm needed. Dear friends, you're needed today. The battle is fierce. Moses agonized over this very thing when he confronted the sons of Gad and Reuben, who had grown comfortable and complacent. And you will recall in Numbers 32, he cried out and he said, Shall your brethren go to war while you yourselves Sit here. Dear friends, do you not know that you have a post to fill in the battle? Might I add, there are no reserves in the Lord's hosts. Why must Paul go all alone to Jerusalem? Are there no others? I think of the need for pastors to be trained for men and women to be trained in leadership in the church, for the myriad of needs that we have even within our own church, for mission fields to be manned both here and abroad. But where are the warriors? What would happen if just ten men of this church would step forward and say, you know what, I will go to Jerusalem. I will serve and pray and give and evangelize and invite people into my church and and into my home. I will train for war and I will fight where needed. I will develop a valiant faith. I will seek opportunities for fellowship. I will become sensitive to the Spirit's leading in my life and I will fear no enemy. What would happen if that were to happen even here in this church? I'll tell you what would happen. The same thing that happened when the sons of Gad and Reuben responded to Moses. In Numbers 32, verse 31, they said, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We ourselves will cross over, armed in the presence of the Lord, into the land of Canaan. And if you read the rest of the story, the Israelites routed the Canaanites and dispossessed the Amorites and entered into the land. Well, in conclusion, we see that Paul would not be deterred. In fact, 
A few others from Caesarea actually joined Paul and his companions. Notice verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Dear friends, I pray that the spirit of all grace will do a mighty work of grace in each of us according to his divine power. And in so doing, perfect in each of us a valiant faith. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, these truths strike at the core of each of our hearts because so often we prefer relief more than blessing. We prefer comfort more than conflict in such a way that it causes us to be cowards. Lord, I pray that somehow by your spirit you would bring conviction to every person within the sound of my voice that they might see the need to engage in the battle. Lord, cause us all to develop a valiant faith. And I pray especially for those who really have no faith. Perhaps theirs is a dead faith that cannot save because they have deceived themselves with some religious veneer, but in fact they know nothing of a love for the Savior. Lord, I pray that by Your grace You will convict them and You will save them. And finally, Lord, as we prepare to dismiss this morning, I pray that You will give us all an overwhelming sense of stewardship as we prepare to give to the needs of those who are suffering in Georgia that many will be able to see the Savior through the gifts that we give. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.